inequality is a word being heard everywhere at present, and the predictions are that in election year it will be one of the main campaigning issues. This Radio New Zealand Insight investigates the significance of the income gap. I will issue an executive order requiring federal contractors to pay their federally funded employees a fair wage of at least $10.10 an hour. The finance minister has repeated his call for employers to reward their workers with more substantial pay increases this year. Inequality, real or perceived, is something so fundamental, so tied up in our humanity that... It makes sense in our hearts that we really should tackle it. President Barack Obama and Pope Francis will meet for the first time in March, focused on tackling the disturbing growth in inequality. Inequality has become a major focus on the international stage in recent months. It's also gaining traction in New Zealand. Wellington's Wesley City Church Choir at the Carols for Our Cleaners evening in the Capitol Civic Square at Christmas. The event was to encourage Wellington City Council to put into practice its proposal to pay its lowest income workers the so-called living wage of $18.40 an hour. A living wage council will make a huge difference in the lives of low-paid cleaners and their families. It will set an example for the cities and other cities in New Zealand. A council cleaner who would just like to be known as Angela made this appeal. The time is right to value the work of cleaners and end the poverty wages. Thank you very much. Angela is looking forward to buying fresh food, affording a doctor's visit and actually seeing something of her children. Just be so good to spend time at home with your family more often than we do. So we work night shift day shift, um, you know, won't have to do that anymore, which is really exciting. I'm Penny Mackay, and this insight considers income and wealth inequality in New Zealand, and asks, is it a source of motivation or of despair? And what you can see very clearly is that in the last 30 years, uh, the gap has widened hugely, not just between top and bottom, but between the top and everybody else. The journalist Max Rashbrook at a recent debate about inequality at Victoria University. He's the editor of the book Inequality, a New Zealand Crisis, and ponders what's happened since this country was considered one of the more equal in the world. What has happened since the mid-1980s is that income gaps here have widened faster than in any other developed country. But most of that widening took place between the mid-80s and about 2000. Since 2000, income gaps have been roughly stable, but they fell a little bit only because of working for families, so only because we did something to tackle them. And then they've been relatively flat since about 2008, mostly because people at the top have taken a temporary hit to their income because of the global financial crisis. And my prediction would be that as top incomes recover and come out of that temporary hit, we will see income gaps widening again. The gap between rich and poor in the developed world is expressed in a bewildering number of ways, and its characteristics are also conveyed in different ways, depending on the research organisation and period of time studied. For instance, in its 2013 report, the OECD had New Zealand 19th most unequal of 34 countries. According to the 2009 research by the authors of another book, The Spirit Level, based on United Nations data, New Zealand is the sixth most unequal of 23 nations.
But the Ministry of Social Development in its 2013 Household Incomes Report has New Zealand about average in the OECD. Max Rashbrook says in New Zealand, the wealthiest 1% owns three times as much as is owned collectively by the poorest 50%. He says that's too much and it's toxic. It's just very corrosive of all the things that hold society together. So it makes people less likely to trust each other, it makes people less likely to empathise with each other, less likely to go out into their communities and help other people because they see less of each other and they don't understand each other's lives. Very unequal societies are also much less healthy and they have much higher levels of stress. People feel much less in control of their lives. They feel that there are much stronger hierarchies at play and that feeds through into a whole range of health and social problems. The problems are said to include high rates of mental illness, violence, drug use and incarceration. A sociologist from the University of Auckland, Tracy McIntosh, believes the lives of the rich are also damaged by inequality. Both ends pay for the disparity. Now, when I think about sort of gated communities and those sorts of things, I don't think that that's a satisfactory option for the rich either. Now, if I think about how you'd want your children to grow up, you'd want your children to be able to grow up in 2045 uh, in a world where they don't feel they have to lock themselves away because their wealth makes them vulnerable. So how did it get like this? While New Zealand is often described as a low productivity economy, workers' output for every hour on the job has improved in recent years. But Max Rashbrook says not everyone has benefited from that. If the average hourly wage had increased as quickly as people's productivity has, it would be about $31 an hour, uh, and it's not. It's more like um, $25 an hour. So there's a big gap between what people are putting in and what they're getting out, and that's one of the classic features of an unequal society. Peter Malcolm is the prime mover behind the website-based campaign Closing the Gap. He says one of the reasons for the disparity between workers' productivity and gains is a fundamental shift in power in the workplace. The balance between the power of the worker and the, uh, the bosses, so to speak, has been significantly reduced over the last 30 years. Now, I'm not a dyed-in-the-wool unionist, and I'm aware that there are a lot of problems associated with the way in which unions worked over a period of time, but that's one of the reasons why the rich have got richer and the poor have stayed the same or have gone backwards. Peter Malcolm, a former secondary school principal of 20 years' experience and mathematics specialist, says another reason is the adoption of the trickle-down effect, an ideology he believes is now discredited trying to make sure that the rich are doing very well in the hope that they will provide plenty of jobs. There are, I would think, almost no modern economists who still believe that. They believe that, in fact, you have got to try and target, if you like, the workforce right across the spectrum. So this is how the equality advocates say the gap developed and what it does to society. But what does it do to the individual? Dr McIntosh describes what she thinks happens to some people who are in the lowest income bands when they see a big gap between them and those on the highest income bands. There's a deep sense of, even in some of our youngest people, uh, a sense of shame around their particular position, uh, a recognition that... We live in a society where income, for example, is equated with 
a whole range of very positive values and that if there's that disparity then you have these much more negative values which they then inhabit. Dr McIntosh says the perceptions of how we are doing are largely formed by how we think others see us. The number of young people who tell me that they're dumb, where the evidence is very clear that they're not, um, and that they're also surprised that I will reject the notion that they're dumb. I don't know how many people have said that to me. Many, many people have said that to me. And why are they saying to you, I'm dumb, if the evidence shows that they're not? The evidence is shown on those one-to-one where we're actually doing sort of work together that would definitely demonstrate it. But their actual experience of, say, going through the compulsory education system is that is that largely they have been seen as dumb. The expectations for their success have been quite low. And in many ways it becomes a, perhaps not a self-fulfilling prophecy, but certainly it is fulfilled. The Council of Christian Social Services has campaigned in recent years to bring people closer together economically. The Council's policy advisor, Paul Barber, argues that poverty isolates people from mainstream society. That kind of exclusion leads to people turning on themselves and those around them. That can be in physical violence, but it can also be in mental health through your own self, um, loss of self-esteem. And uh, the experience of those who work with the most vulnerable is that the sense of hope is, is vital. And in a more equal society, you can hope to move ahead in life. Max Rashbrook agrees. He says in a more equal country, like Denmark, less than 20% of an adult's income can be predicted by what their parents earn. In the very unequal United States, 50% of someone's income can be predicted by their parents' income. If you're living in a more equal society, the difference for you as a child growing up in poverty is that there are a lot more ladders out of that condition. Uh, In a more equal country, because more people feel uh, like they have a stake in the common good, uh, society is more likely to invest in the collective things which benefit everyone. So more equal societies tend to have better quality public services which are available free of charge so everybody can benefit from them. Good afternoon, Business New Zealand, Kavish speaking. But not everyone believes social mobility is difficult in this country. The chief executive of Business New Zealand, Phil O'Reilly, says a little bit of inequality is good because it provides an incentive to work hard and move up the ladder. Where it becomes worrisome is if it means that people are forever excluded from making the right choices and they're forever excluded from ever being able to move up the income ladder and I don't think that's the case in New Zealand. In fact in the last decade or so inequality has been trending down. We're actually less unequal than we were 10 years ago and given the fact that we've got wonderful institutions in New Zealand like a free education system, uh, free access to justice, a uncorrupt society, these kinds of things, they all tend to mean that you've got the capacity to move forward all things equal if you make the right choices. But Tracy McIntosh says New Zealand is not a place where people have only to make good decisions to move out of poverty. Using schooling as an example, she says perceptions work against people of low income. Middle class, upper middle class children who are perhaps not meeting sort of the academic levels that they should, it is much more likely, I'm not saying it's always going to happen, but it's more likely that it's seen that they're bored. 
uh, that they're not being extended enough, that in fact they might even be gifted. So we need to be doing more for them. If we're in a really low socioeconomic area and there's a, or there's one child that's known to be from a lower socioeconomic one in, say, a mid-range decile school and is exhibiting exactly the same types of activities, it's much less likely that that child will be seen as gifted. It's much less likely that that child is going to be seen as slow, non-responsive, uh, not fully engaged. Very unlikely that that child be put into an extension program. But there are those who say focusing on the gap between rich and poor is a distraction from the urgent need to address poverty in and of itself. Matt Nolan is a senior economist with the analysts Infometrics and believes much of any gap can be explained like this. Some people really want to buy lots of things. And so they will work really, really hard to do that. Some people don't care about material things nearly as much and really don't like working. So they'll want to work a lot less to just get enough to go and relax and enjoy their leisure time more. And appreciating that difference is, an, is a positive thing, but that's one thing that will keep an income gap existing in society. When we see a gap, it's not just the result of injustice. We care about injustice and we care about well-being, but we're convoluting the gap with that. Mr Nolan believes the stress associated with being poor is more a case of low-income New Zealanders struggling to catch up to wealthier ones. These more impoverished people say, I want to keep up with the Joneses. I need a bigger house. I need to put myself in debt, put myself under stress and find myself in mental duress. In the end, I have trouble looking after my child, looking after other people in my community and family because I'm under so much stress. And you hear that and you feel empathy. We know people like that and we know that goes on. However, it's not the result of inequality. That comes from the fact that we're trying to keep up with each other. The Minister of Finance, Bill English, is also impatient with a narrow focus on any gap, but he says the government is doing plenty to help people who are at the lower end of the income spectrum. He's frank about past government failure in addressing poverty. For years and years, actually, central government has found it quite difficult to have much impact at all on criminal offending, on long-term welfare dependency, on vulnerable children. And often our spending is simply new programs designed to make up for failed programs in the past. And there's been a lack of transparency and often a lack of honesty about the limited effectiveness of government intervention into dealing with drivers and causes of poverty. So <clears throat> we're trying to be much more transparent about that with publishing results we're trying to achieve and drive much harder on public services demonstrating effectiveness with its interventions. Mr English says since the tax changes of 2010, households earning less than $60,000 a year, and that's about half of all households, receive more in government support than they pay in income tax. But Ganesh Nana, the chief economist at the business and economic research company Burl, says those government interventions form an albatross around the necks of middle and upper income New Zealanders and damage the whole economy. If a significant proportion of the workforce are unable to contribute, that actually hobbles the ability of the economy as a whole to, to generate jobs, generate um, products, generate services, generate wealth. So what you're saying is that, that the higher income people are also affected by inequality even though they may not realise it? Yes, because those higher income people are actually contributing um, to the upkeep 
of the people at the bottom of the ladder or the people who have missed out is probably a better way of putting it. We've got a society here that believe it's not appropriate to leave those by the by, so the higher income earners are paying for it. Bill English says the government is determined to create an economy where employers are willing to take risks on hiring people. He says this is particularly important when countries like India and China adopt policies to raise millions of their own people out of poverty, putting pressure on New Zealand jobs. Our response to that is to work on having a resilient economy where uh, people uh, can shift um, around to different jobs, different skills as those global, external and uncontrollable pressures come to bear on our income distribution. But the editor, Max Rashbrook, says the more equal countries did not wait to have a thriving economy before pursuing income equality. They invested first. If you pay people better, they're more productive. They deliver more value and it goes that way around. You have to put the investment in up front if you're going to reap the rewards later on. And the countries that have had you know, strong economies and greater equality, they have taken those decisions. They didn't have a long period where they were incredibly unequal and generating huge amounts of growth, and then they thought, oh, let's close up some of those gaps. It's the other way around. They've always had that commitment to equality, and that's allowed them to create a society which functions well and an economy that performs well. Ganesh Nana also believes investing now and for the long term is what is needed. I'd much prefer intervention was at the top of the cliff, whether it be in the form of scholarships or whether it be in the form of lots more investment in education and skills training, whether it's in science and whether it's in research and development or whether it's in marketing or whether it's in sales, all those new things that we write a whole lot of words about but we are actually reluctant to invest serious dollars in. Phil O'Reilly of Business New Zealand agrees about the need for a cliff-top fence. A lot of it is about building the capability of those people to get into the labour market and to get a job, and that's a complex issue. It's about, an, about taking an investment approach to their skills. It's about having an awful lot of, of if you like, help and care around them and the employer if they do get a job. It's about staying with them for a period of time to make sure that they get into the work habit again. And then it's about making sure that the other responsibilities they have in their lives, kids, parents, grandparents, whatever it might be, are also looked after and there's some pastoral care around that as well. So this is a complex issue, those kinds of interventions that you need to make. They're expensive, but I think we can all recognise if you make them, you get a big payback uh, in society as a result of people actually getting on the, the job ladder and doing something with their lives. There are advocates of wealth redistribution who say a tax of 45% on the very rich would reduce the income gap, as would death duties, a capital gains tax or a tax on financial transactions. But the economist Shamabil Jakob says just hold on a moment with those ideas. Most of the taxes are paid by the top third of workers. The bottom two thirds are net receivers of transfers. So what we're saying is that we want to have even more of the money going from the rich to the poor. It's a, it's a societal choice that we have to make, and it's really up to us, and it's a political decision, not an economic one. Because if it is an economic one, what, what we're voting for is there is less reward for effort and innovation. But Max Rashbrook supports the idea of requiring the wealthy to contribute even more in order to create a more even society. People do work really hard and people do take risks. 
but everything that people do is reliant on what society has provided for them. You know, the, the kind of the common store that we have built up over generations of effort by millions of people, we're all drawing out of that common store. And if you've, you know, kind of been able to extract more income from that, it's only fair that you put back into that more than other people in order that that common store keeps on being replenished and everybody can benefit from it in future generations. Ganesh Nana says a tax on wealth is possibly even more important than that on income. Wealth is one of the main drivers, of, I would argue, of um, the inequality that gets embedded in the system over the long haul. Are if you talking you, about inherited wealth? Inherited wealth or even accumulated wealth, um, whether it's accumulated over um, a lifetime or over generations. Um, the more we have wealth inequality, then the more um, the inequalities get embedded in the system. There's no doubt anxiety about inequality is increasing. Paul Barber from the Council of Christian Social Services says there's evidence of growing support in New Zealand for a more equitable society. It's been interesting to see the uh, recent Roy Morgan poll that's been conducted over the past two to three years asking people what is the most important uh, problem facing New Zealanders. Back in 2011, when our program began, about 4% of the people interviewed in the survey named the gap between rich and poor and poverty as their most important problem. In July, when asked exactly the same questions, it was up to 15%. Uh, it's moved ahead in people's awareness and consciousness, ahead of things like cost of living, unemployment, uh, economy, crisis and recession. And that increased anxiety about inequality is in part responsible for the living wage movement arriving in New Zealand. Born in the American city of Baltimore in the early 90s, the campaign has spread to many cities in the United States and a number of areas in Britain. Researchers here settled on $18.40 an hour as the amount needed for a family of four to have basic participation in society, with one parent working full-time and the other half-time. While paying the living wage is a voluntary act, the campaign's convener, Annie Newman, says with 500,000 New Zealanders not earning a wage sufficient for them to participate properly in society, it's only fair for most organisations to consider it. We need to look at all those businesses that can pay and currently don't. We've had a major bank announcing $1.3 billion profit, and that's an enormous amount of money. Now, all banks in New Zealand are paying their cleaners somewhere around $14 an hour. This is unacceptable. Almost 80% of families earning below the so-called living wage are either single adults or couples with no children. That makes the living wage an extremely poorly targeted intervention. Bill English told Parliament at the end of last year that the economy must be sufficiently robust so employers can pay the living wage. Annie Newman says he's missing the point. Part of the reason that we argue uh, there is a need for a living wage is that people do not have enough money in their pockets to spend in the local economies. We have very weak local economies. If we pay people more money and they spend their money locally, then local businesses thrive, and that helps to create a much more um, uh, vital economy. 
On January the 1st, Wellington City Council became the first in the country to introduce a living wage for 450 of its employees, and Auckland City Council may well follow later this year. But Business New Zealand's Phil O'Reilly says the policy is a very poor one. The living wage is based on the idea of a, of a family of two people with two kids. And it's incredibly poorly targeted if, if, if that's what you want to help because most families are not two parents with two kids. It also says we'll pay everybody the same living wage whether they live in Auckland or Gore or Invercargill. And we all know that the living costs in those cities are very, very different. And thirdly, it says we'll pay everybody this living wage when we know that actually many of the people earning the minimum wage, certainly a big cohort of them, are actually uh, in high income households. They're, for example, students working minimum wage jobs, working in, in quite, but otherwise in quite wealthy families. The better way of doing it is to say, let the market play out. The economist Shamabil Jacob agrees, saying the living wage could mean businesses employing fewer people. To him, the key to narrowing the gap is education. The biggest equaliser is education, because with education you have access to jobs, to social mobility, to be able to look after yourself. And it's not just about economic outcomes, it's also linked to health outcomes with all of the social things as well. Ideally you would do something about housing segregation. I mean if I could wave a wand that is something that you would be tackling. You'd be tackling. But at the Council for Educational Research, the Chief Researcher Kathy Wiley says children from areas where there is a concentration of low income families do not always have access to the good education that their well off peers do. There's really strong research internationally about the advantage of kids attending schools where there's an even social mix. Uh, and uh, what that means is that you're not having the concentration of kids from poor homes in one school that we have got in New Zealand now because we have got housing in separate areas so that um, kids from very poor homes are likely to be mixing only with other kids from, from poor homes. And when they're coming to school, they're coming with less of the experience with the sorts of things that schools do. It's harder for them to latch on to the formal learning situation. Um, you'll find that the teacher's job is harder in those schools and the kids aren't getting the same learning from their peers that they would if they were in schools that were more evenly mixed. Dr Wiley says the additional funding the government gives to low decile schools is not enough to close the gap. One American study, she says, indicates that such schools need to be funded 40 to 100 per cent more per student to be truly effective. Closing the gap's Peter Malcolm says whatever investment the government makes in narrowing that gap will make for a happier and more robust society. If we had a more equal society, our per capita spending on things like health, police, security systems would be significantly reduced in government spending if we had a much more equal society, which means lower tax rates, which means more money in the hands of lots of people. Equally, he says, if nothing is done, he fears for the world his grandchildren will inherit. I'm Penny Mackay and that's Insight for this week. If you would like to contact us, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or send us a tweet at rnz underscore insight. I wrote and presented that program. It was produced by Philippa Tolley with technical production by Jeremy Veal.